Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that tells heartfelt stories to help you maximize your impact and inspire action in minimal time. Check out more about what we do at SixSecondStories.com. Quick question on my compelling storytellers. Do you know the best practices for your industry or for the platform that you're using? You know what? Scratch that. Here's a better question. Do you know why they are considered the best practices? Have you ever stopped and thought about why best practices are best practices? And are they really the best practices for you? So that last question is essentially the question for the thesis of our guest today. Our guest today is Jay Akunzo. Jay is a writer and a marketer and a podcast host and a speaker. Now, I first found out about him through his book, Break the Wheel, and I completely fell in love with the concepts and the examples and the stories that he was telling. Uh, I found a lot of similarities in how I like to help the people that I try to serve, uh, which is hopefully you all listening to the show, um, in that... I am always preaching it's not about the tools that you have, but about what what you can do with them. It's not about, it's about what you, you say, not how or where you say it necessarily. Those things are important, but not if you don't know how to tell a good story or how to communicate effectively and efficiently. If you don't know those basics, then it doesn't matter what tools you use. And what Jay tries to dissect and tries to convey is that, one, 
just because something is considered best practices doesn't mean that it is for you or your industry. There's there's no there's no nuance to the term or the concept of best practices. Best for whom? For everyone? For every single industry or every uh, subsection of the industry or every size business? Like that can't be true. But we but we accept it, right? We like well for Instagram these are best practices. Yeah, for who? You know, so so Jay tries to push us to really understand where we're trying to go and what we're trying to do and do a little bit of trial and error just to see what works. And he 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 explains this and he conveys it so well through actual examples. One that he talks about on today's episode, which I don't want to give it away because I want you to hear it from him. But essentially, he used to work for Google and there was something that is very commonly considered a best practice at Google uh, or for people using Google ads or, or um, trying to optimize their search position is a very best, you know, common practice, best practice that essentially just came from Google trying to, to, to sell ads. And so, you know, you might hear from a marketing expert that, Hey, you need to do this. These are best practices. But that person may or may not know what originated. Where where did this idea or whatever they're selling originate? What was the initial purpose of it? If the initial purpose was to line the pockets of Google, then how is that a best practice for you? Um, another e- easy example is, um, and I think this came from the book, is um, n- newspapers. So the size that we have become accustomed to with newspapers is basically because they used to charge for ink, which is very expensive, by the page. And so this long page format came up because we could fit a lot of uh, a lot of content on a, on a page. Now that we have different printing abilities, you know, it, we don't have the same issues that they had when that rule, that unwritten rule, started. And so it doesn't even apply anymore. So, and Jay gives countless examples of these where the initial reason, even if it was justifiable, is antiquated and not even not even relevant to what we're trying to do now, yet we still subscribe to these these best practices that are just accepted and wide ranging and not really relevant to the specific thing we're trying to accomplish. The book has been out for a couple of years, but that was the main reason I reached out to him just because I, I loved it so much. But Jay is currently operating his, his new business, Marketing Showrunners. And he also has a podcast called Three Clips. And what he what he does with the podcast is he breaks down other podcasts, other marketers that have podcasts, and essentially focuses on covering and advancing the movement of marketers making shows. This is another reason I was excited to talk to him because I preach this as well to my video storytelling clients. Make a series, not just one video and then people watch it and then never never come back. Keep them engaged. You can go so much deeper when you have a series for them to latch onto and and keep coming back. And Jay talks about that a lot. It's not about grabbing their attention. It's about keeping their attention. And he and I both agree that shows are the best way to do that. So Jay is, and I told him this on the on the show, and I'm going to try to uh, pluck out these great sound bites because it was full of all these perfect little quotable sound bikes. Uh, you know, he, the man has a way with words and, and it, it was awesome to hear there. You'll hear me in the background a couple of times just going, mm, 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 <laughs> in agreement. So, uh, I know that you guys will love it. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up so we can jump into it. 
Here is Jay Akunzo from Marketing Showrunners. Enjoy. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, like I said in the email, I, I mean, I read the book and love the book. Uh, there's a lot of parallels in, in the messaging that I try to use to help people through storytelling, and we'll, we'll get to some of that. But uh, I've been following your work for just about the past year and, and really dig the uh, the stuff that you're doing. And um, yeah, it's exciting and 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 kind of refreshing because I think I don't know if you get a lot of backlash, but like it's it seems to be like against the grain on purpose <laughs> to like rethink how we approach things. Uh, and I, for one, dig that. <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, what's funny is the the impetus for writing the book and doing the shows and, and you know, it's not just like I thought, let's go against the grain to be a rebel. Right, it's right. that every single time I talk to somebody who does go against the grain, that is, or they do something that looks like optically like it's unconventional. When you talk to them, they lay out this very logical case for why they do it that way. Yeah. And I was always fascinated by that, so I want to explore it's essentially like why, why we don't think that way. And isn't that how the isn't that how we like isn't that how we make new strides, start new trends, and like figure out new things, right? By by like doing something different. I I think so, but I also think like we put a premium on the idea of different a little too much because it Fair. can't just be like I I you know I give a lot of speeches as part of my business. Yeah. And I always joke that I could give a speech for 45 minutes with my back turned to the audience. Like mm -hmm. I would be the most different speaker that they've ever seen, but I wouldn't be doing my job. And mm. like, so it's sort of like different That's and good point. or different and welcome. And so the word I've started using is refreshing because mm. it actually plants you not in a contrast to the yeah, competition, yeah. like which is what different does. It plants you in the perspective of the people you try to serve because they declare it as refreshing. Whereas like when we say we got to be different, the question becomes different from whom and you start looking horizontally yes. at your competitors. And also the connotation weighs a lot. Like if you're pitching somebody a different idea, all they're going to see are red flags and their insecurities are going to go up about, okay, well, why wouldn't it work? So I think the term refreshing, it's like it's more intriguing to people if you're having to like sell someone higher up the chain or something like that. Right, right. Um, so – Catch me up on what you're doing now. Like, what are you focused on and excited about for, for 2020? I know you have, and I want to learn more about the marketing for showrunners, but what else is on the uh, the agenda for this year for you? That's it. It's like yeah. a year of focus for me. So I've done, for three years, I sort of danced around lots and lots of projects, which mm -hmm. is a lot of fun for me, and it's kind of like just how I like to operate, having multiple Same. things going on at once. Yeah. This year, it's very much about trying to go deeper with mm. helping marketers <clears throat> a very specific type of marketer, the one that likes to see their job as something grander than just selling stuff. Mm. And when they execute on their grander vision for the job, oh, by the way, they end up selling more stuff. Yeah. But they're, they got into this because they believe it's a way to find and share their voice, to make a difference in the lives of the audience they want to serve, and then together with the community that they build, try to make something better in the culture. Yeah. Um, and so like, I think the best way to do that right now is to make a show. And because if you look at where marketing has gone, it's moved away from this idea that marketers are supposed to grab attention to mm -hmm. you're supposed to hold attention and earn trust and love. And the only way to do that is to deliver something that people want to, they choose to spend time with over time, significant time. And a show is a construct that does that brilliantly. And it's also great for you, the host and the creator, because you get to refine your thinking over time and like invite people on this journey of understanding. So I've, I've kind of invested it all right now on 
trying to find that audience, mm-hmm. serve them really deeply, and develop educational products. Yeah. And so that organization is called Marketing Showrunners. Uh, and then I have a podcast to support it called Three Clips, where I'm deconstructing really great podcasts with sometimes with other hosts, uh, okay. oftentimes with our our managing editor Molly. So, and when you say shows, can you clarify for the audience like what that means? I know that you have a lot of experience with uh, with uh, producing podcasts, but does that mean like video series as well? Yeah, I although I've only done a couple of video series, and I've done probably about a dozen uh, podcasts, either as an advisor, a hired host and producer, or right. my own shows. So I'm definitely I skew podcast, but when I say show, I do so very strategically because I do mean this serialized exploration to yes. go deeper on a topic yes. with the audience. And it can be you can manifest the show in audio, in video, mm-hmm. in both. You know, the same show can have components of both, or you can have a, a tangent that you go specific to one medium or the other. So when I talk about this movement of marketers making shows, I'm very careful not to say podcast or video unless we're talking about something that's specific to that medium because yeah. marketers have this way of glomming onto tactics and channels and it's actually less about that it's much more about what are you saying you know is is the show going to be considered somebody's favorite the yes. concept that you explore um, i like to say that there's three p's of great show running which is for the audience it has to be personal for the brand mm-hmm. it has to be proprietary and for the marketer who executes it it has to be performative Mm. And if so, when you do it that way, like that's not talking about podcast versus video. That's right. talking about this IP that you're exploring, the subject matter. And then once you figure out, okay, well, what is it that we're creating? Then you can say, where does it go? Mm. Does it go through audio? Does it go through video? Is it best suited for one or the other or both? Mm. So this is something I, I, I'd like to, to stay here for a little while because this is something that I work uh, or try to preach to the people that I speak to and do workshops for, um, because one of the biggest things that I hear, and, and so I'm a documentary filmmaker and have been for 15 years. Now I'm helping people understand how to use those tactics to tell video stories. And by those tactics, I mean how to tell effective stories without a lot of time, money, resources, etc. That's what I had to do as a documentary filmmaker. And so... Um, one of the biggest tips that I give people is the power of doing a series like this is exactly what you're talking about because I can't tell you how much I hear. Yeah, we just need some help doing uh, telling our brand story and like that's it. Like they think there's one video or one story to tell. They put it on their website and their job's done. And that's no longer the case from my from my in my opinion. Ten years ago, that would kind of be what you would see on websites. So I encourage people to do these to do series and have you know keep people coming back as you said hold their attention and even last night i was with my wife um uh do you remember the 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 movie the john cusack movie high fidelity where he worked at a record store oh yeah sure they just did a a kind of remixed version on hulu with um so we're we're watching it yeah yeah we're watching that right now and um and so last night, my, my wife and I were talking about it. She's never seen the movie. I did. And the first, I mean, a lot of it is, is very, very similar to the show. However, in like episode eight, you're starting to dive deeper into the the other characters' plots. I mean, uh, story arcs and character arcs and have subplots. And so I was just talking about how a series gives you that option of going deeper. Like the movie, the hour and a half movie, you're never going to learn that much about Jack Black's character. But the equivalent to that, which is a a, a a woman in the TV show, like now she's having like her story being told. And I thought I just I love that about series. So 
Um, can we talk a little bit about how a series gives you gives you that option to have more depth, more connection, and keep your audience there for the longer term? Sure. I mean, that that is part of the value, and I think that's something I'm trying to urge our audience to think more clearly about, which is what is this actually for? Yeah. And I like to joke that uh, – so I'm, I live in Boston. I've lived in Connecticut. I've lived in New York. Um, so I've always been on the kind of like East Coast Amtrak train <laughs> corridor. Yeah. And uh, so I joke that marketers have what I call the Amtrak Airlines problem, mm. which is they are building a train – and people around them or even they expect it to fly once they're finished. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, actually, you're building something that doesn't fly. It's really good at doing great train stuff. It, why not build the best damn train possible? But it's not a, it's not a plane. And so marketers are like obsessed with reach and, and getting more people. And, you know, so I always say it's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. Mm. It's not about getting people the transaction of whatever you're teaching in the show or whatever story you're telling. It's not about the benefits and being on the receiving end at the end of your episode. The point of the podcast or the show that could be film too, it could be video. Mm -hmm. The point of the show is the experience of the show. Like Mm -hmm. they need to choose to go deeper with you, to spend meaningful time with you, right? So know what it's for. It's not a plane, it's a train. And then focus on making the best damn train possible. And unfortunately, you get a lot of pressures today to make the thing fly when it's not built for that. Mm. It's not built for reach. It's built for resonance. And a byproduct might be actually if you serve a loyal audience deeply enough, they'll go tell more people and you'll start to grow reach. But we're trying to force this thing, this idea of a show, to do something it's not really built for. So uh, there's all these little ways you can come at this from a technical standpoint, right? Yeah. like the technique of production and how you actually get people to stick around. Um, but from a high-level strategic standpoint, we first have to acknowledge that the point of a show is to go deeper in a world trending shallow, which is about the most powerful thing you can do if you can pull it off. Hmm. What what pushback or like what 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 speed bumps or obstacles do people run into, or, or what narratives do they have? in their heads about a series that has them like reluctant to do this. Like if you're talking to somebody and you suggest this option, have you noticed a, a common trend in like why people are reluctant to, to do a series? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, not so much because okay. I'm not in the business of serving people that are reluctant to do a series, right? It's yeah. like one of the most empowering things you can do in your business, no matter yeah. what you do for work is you can decide who you're for and who you're not for. for sure. And so, you know, who we're for um, it looks like anybody who is working in house at a brand, any agency, mm-hmm. any freelancer, basically anybody who's marketing their business and what they sell is not ad space. Ostensibly, that's who we're for because it's great marketing to do a show. Yeah. But if you go deeper than demographics and you cut beyond the superficial level, you find the psychographics. And that's where we can define who marketing showrunners is not for, which is that type of marketer that. They just want to arbitrage a trend. They're like, this is now an easier thing to do than, say, another channel like blogging or search, which is super saturated. So while this is hot, we are going to jump on it and then we'll move on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, kind of like locusts to a field. Once it's all chewed through and there's too much crowd, we're going to move on. Wow. That is not who we aim to serve. You can't tell that by looking at where they work and their job title. Yeah. But you can tell that by by talking to them. And so the moment somebody says, I am skeptical that we should do a show or I am skeptical that we should serve our audience more deeply. I think we just need to fill 
you know, the proverbial marketing funnel with more people, we get more attention and more awareness. As soon as they anchor to that, it's like high five, handshake, hug, wish you well, but you're just, we're not going to build something for you. Yeah. Um, now that said, we do have to help people who are deeply into our mission, you know, when they go back to work, make the case for what they're doing. Right, for sure. Right. And so, for example, in November, we did a whole month that we call Make the Case Month, mm. which is all this content, 100% of our editorial calendar was dedicated to things like the CMO's business case for making a show. Yeah. Or, you know, we got a lot of experts to comment about why they're bullish on going deeper instead of broader. All these things, data examples. You know, I think the biggest thing we did that continues to excite folks is we put together what we called the world's biggest list of branded podcasts and video shows. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's this pillar piece that helps people kind of promote the story of FOMO to an executive, a client, a stakeholder that's shutting them down. So while we're not going to address the skeptical stakeholder shutting them down directly, we are trying to equip people that believe what we believe with the material they need to you know, better evangelize this idea internally. So I know that I know that doesn't exactly answer your question, but I think that, that when you encounter something around you, especially if you're in a services business mm-hmm. where where they're like, I'm skeptical, our tendency is to dig in and try to convince the skeptics. But there are moments where you want to say, is this person actually the one I want to serve? Right. Yeah. The one I want to work with, the client I want to win, the peer that is worth spending more time with. And I think so often we struggle to make that choice because we don't cut deeper than demographics and we don't sort through who we're for and who we're not for mm-hmm. as this helpful filter to go and make better decisions. And so so that's what we tried to do as an organization. And honestly, it was the first time I ever tried this exercise and it's been profoundly empowering. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, all, all that ma- makes complete sense, uh, but especially the part about having to to get someone else on board and having to kind of sell them. Uh, a lot of my a lot of my audience is beginning beginner marketers i mean often it may be nonprofits and they're a one person marketing team or they may be someone who's just starting their business and trying to uh trying to understand how to do content marketing so a lot of times they are met with Th- you know things that get in the way, whether that's another person, whether that's their own belief, belief uh, or beliefs. Um, so often, part of what I find myself having to do um, is kind of having to coach them through that. And uh, I think, though, what you're saying is completely valuable about just like because I've also dealt with pretty pretty terrible clients that are just like if I should have cut it off in the beginning when I saw they didn't get it and what we do and what I focus on because why I was excited to talk to you is like a lot of the same themes that I focus on with storytelling are the, are the same you know same concepts that you talk about going deeper less is more uh, when people try to make a video or tell a story and they're talking about a million different things or stats and data and people aren't locking on to that I try to help them understand how to tell a simple heartfelt story to hook them emotionally and then you can give them the information you need. And so um, a lot of times I am dealing with people who are just starting this journey and trying to understand it. And often they have things that are kind of getting in the way, whether they're in their own minds or their lack of money, lack of time. That's something right. that, that they often often run into. Um, and so I know that I want to go back a little bit and kind of establish your um, 
career, your your work as a as a content marketer. And I also want to, you know, like I said, a lot of my audience are, are, are just starting out and just learning how to tell their stories. So I want to talk about the concept of, of content marketing and kind of lay that out as if a person doesn't even, you know, they're just starting their business and they don't even really know what that means. So in the simplest way you can put it, what is what is content marketing, but what is good content marketing look like? It's so tricky because we as creators don't get to decide what good is, right? Fair. That's for the audience to decide. Uh, and so all we can do is decide what better is because mm. it's that's all we can control is just being better than last time out. But I'll try to give a definition to content marketing really broadly. Um, content marketing is solving the same problem that your product or service aims to solve, mm-hmm. but through media you create and own and distribute instead of the product or service. So if you sell marketing software, ostensibly you know you have a vision for how that marketing software is different than every competitor of yours and maybe your whole thing is we're trying to help people in a crazy world of marketing make their marketing simpler mm-hmm. and so you latch on as a brand to this idea of everything we do is about helping marketers make their jobs simpler okay well in your product you're probably making choices like we're not going to have a lot of features we're going to be very beautifully designed like all these choices that you make because of what you're trying to solve in the world for your uh-huh. audience is the idea of simplicity okay well, if you then go to promote your product instead of running an ad to just talk about your product and say, hey, we exist and have a product, yeah. you can start creating media, whether it's blog posts, social posts, uh, audio, video. You start creating things people want to consume that actually adds value to their life hmm. discreetly by consuming it. They're not just made aware that you have value. They're actually experiencing some of that value in the content but it also maps directly to your product and your vision for your brand because you're not going to write a 35-page ebook about how to make this marketing stuff simpler, right? Yeah. You're going to create easier to access content, very simple ideas. Maybe you're going to be a whiz at naming these blurry concepts. Like let's call this the XYZ concept of marketing, right? Remember that simple phrase whenever you're trying to do this. And why are we teaching it this way? instead of some scientific deconstruction of marketing with lots of data and 35 pages, because we as a brand believe in helping you make marketing simple. Hmm. We do that through our content, and when you're ready to level up and get even more value to solve this problem in even better ways, we have a product or we have a consultancy, we have a service, we have something to sell you that's even better than the content, right? Um, So that's all this is. We conflate all these different definitions and we try to lace it with run-on sentences, I think it's about if you start by being in touch with your business and what problem you're solving and how it's unique the way you approach it, your content marketing is solving the same problem that your business solves, but you're doing it through media that you create and own and distribute. Hmm. No, I think that was perfect. That was very thorough. Um, So where were you, like, take me back. I want to go and talk about the book a little bit because that's what introduced me to you and your work. Um, What did you do prior to that? What was your background? Yeah, I mean, really quick, because bios suck, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I just uh, in terms of the content marketing world, sure, I know sure, that sure. you know. I started as a sports journalist. Oh, okay. um, I wanted to write for print publications and become a feature columnist. And print was in the tank in 2008 when I sure. left college and looked for a job. And I wound up working as a digital media strategist at Google, where I would advise brands and agencies on how to use Google products for their marketing. Um, and so that kind of showed me the world of tech and marketing, and also the world of like innovation because even though Google was huge there were a lot of what looked like mini startups within Google yeah and that's what I fell in love with I was like okay the marketing world needs writers and creators more than ever and 
it's possible thanks to the internet and all these digital tools that are free or cheaper than ever before to build your own thing. That's what I want to do. So I left Google, worked for a couple of startups and a venture capital firm that invested in startups and kind of haven't looked back from there. It's just to me, I like to build and tinker, not work for a large corporation. It's just mm. not what excites me. Nothing wrong with that. Just not right. for me. And, uh, and so for the last three years since leaving my job in, in VC, I was on the road speaking. Mm-hmm. I was creating my own podcast and several client podcasts and working on the book that you mentioned called Break the Wheel, which is about attacking this problem of commodity work. So much commodity content and lapsing into, well, everyone says this is the best practice, so that's how we'll make our choices. Even if you're not in marketing, it's just there's a lot of average work out there, but nobody aspires to be average. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to attack that problem and really hold best practices to account because there's a lot of issues with best practices as our default way of making choices. Um, like what? And so, well, I mean, for starters, they're generalities. They're what works on average or in general, and they omit very crucial variables that come from your specific situation. Right. And the way I was able to think like this, or at least find this, is I was running a podcast where every single episode, we talked to people that would do something that seemed unconventional, mm-hmm. but then we talked to them about the choices they made, and they saw it as logical. And mm. I was like, where's the divide here? Why do we all see it as crazy, but they see it as smart? oh, it turns out that in their shoes, they had access to all these details from their context that we lacked when all we knew was general advice. Um, And that ranged from coffee brands making choices based on the type of bean that they would roast and why they chose the unconventional type of product. Well, it's because they knew their customers better than the average coffee expert, Mm -hmm. all the way up to giant corporations. I mean, you could stay in the coffee business. I found an example from Starbucks of why they made some certain choices in different markets that, you know, in the in our home base of the U.S., it would be ludicrous to do it that way. Mm. Um, and so the, the punchline here is finding best practices is never the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. And the divide between the best practice in general and what's best for you specifically is the divide between average and exceptional work. And so I spent two and a half years telling stories, finding data, finding science, finding psychology, and then trying to coalesce that into the book, uh, Break the Wheel. And that came out uh, about two years ago at this point. Can you tell the story about uh, the, the the Google ads that you were having to sell? I think it was Google ads, like the search ads, right, that, that was in the book? Did that kind of lead to this? Yeah. I mean, there are all these things I just – I was naive because I was young and yeah. I had no idea what Google was all about from the business side. Yeah. Um, and I look back at that, I'm like, oh, that naivete was actually really useful. And I, I like ignored it and stuffed it down. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would sell things like site links, which was a feature of a search ad. And I remember in 2010, Google released this new feature, which would append like four different links, like subheaders to a search ad. And everybody has probably seen these things. And if you're in marketing, you probably know what it is. But the idea here is that the ad would command more surface area on search mm-hmm. and have more clickable links. So you would get more clicks. So people were obsessed with this feature when it came out and Google made a lot more money, right? Now, I sold specifically to small businesses. They were my clients. I was like their internal product advisor for right. how to do uh, search ads and, and marketing through Google products. And the, the worst thing happened in the world, which was I succeeded in selling lots and lots of site links. And so all these small businesses called us a few months later and they were so angry at Google 
because while they saw a lot more clicks to their ads right. and therefore a lot more traffic to their sites, they're, they're small businesses. Their sites weren't perfectly optimized to like capture the demand they were driving. Mm-hmm. So they basically chewed through their search budgets and their marketing budgets overall and saw no benefit to their business. So like this promise of site links was this is now going to save your business. This is going to drive a lot of demand for your business. But all we were really saying was this is going to make Google a lot more money. Yeah. Like there was no guarantee that it would actually drive business on your website. And so when I surfaced this problem at Google, the refrain from the mothership wasn't, oh, tell them to switch off the feature until they fix their website. The refrain was, well, why don't you have them install Google Analytics? Right. And like Google was laughing all the way to the bank. Right. I was sick to my stomach about what we had done. At 24, I had no idea what I was doing. And that was a, a little bit of a an eye-opening moment that the reason everybody in search and search marketing were declaring site links a best practice wasn't because they were truly the best practice for every type of business. It was because Google wanted them to be right. the best practice. Right. So just because we're doing what's newest or what some power that be says is the best, it doesn't mean we're doing what's best for us. Right. There, there, there There's some unknown narrative behind it or some unknown reason that, that, that calls that to be the norm, the standard. And then we just all accept that and don't really break down or even investigate why. Well, there is, there is actually a re- there are several reasons I dug up in my research for the book about why we act that way. Yeah. Um, which is the, you know, the, the, the way the brain makes choices. Like we're, some of it is in our control and some of it is not. Um, and if we could look at and acknowledge and understand the part that is not in our control, in other words, these reflective or mm-hmm. reflexive rather, yes. um, decision-making, we can control it better. And so one psychology phenomenon that I uncovered was called Pike syndrome, which is this idea that we've kind of been trained over years and years of our lives to look out there, to seek the expert, to seek the best practice in general as a way to find our answers um, because of this idea of what's called learned helplessness. Mm. And so Pike syndrome is kind of an odd name brain, so maybe I should just break that down really quick. Um, It's from a scientific experiment where the the scientists would drop some minnows into a tank containing a pike, which is a Uh predatory fish. And obviously the pike would eat the minnows right away until the scientists would lower in these minnows in a glass cup and the pike couldn't see the cup and it would smash against it for hours until it trained itself to believe that it couldn't eat minnows. And then you could move the cup and the minnows could swim freely around the tank and the pike wouldn't attack them. So the pike had learned this form of helplessness. It had learned that these little morsels in front of its nose weren't worth pursuing. Hmm. And, you know, from the moment we're taught at a young age in school that there's a right and a wrong answer, I think that's how we approach almost every choice in the workplace, whether it's something we have to be more creative and innovative on or it's something very rote. We believe that these firsthand experiences, these details from within our context, like these day to day insights floating right in front of our nose couldn't possibly hold the answer. And so we go seeking our answers in this vague notion of like out there, the experts, the trend, the best practice. Yeah learned this helplessness that our self-awareness and our situational awareness is not as useful as the expert or the trend or the convention. So we discredit that firsthand experience of the world. And actually we should start there. It's horrifying. It is. That's heavy. And there's actually a very simple way to combat it, which is instead of trying to act like an expert, which knows the answers in general, (laughs) 
act like an investigator, yeah. which learns how to act, ask really great Stay open-ended curious. questions. Yeah. Right? Be curious, look for evidence, ask questions, like question everything, not to be a brat, <laughs> not yeah, to be yeah. a rebel, but because you have that curiosity, like you said, and you can inform your choices based on real world evidence and use that evidence as a filter. Because you might say, actually, this jibes, the best practice is for us. Yeah. Or you might say, no, you know, Rain said or Jay said, do it this way, but they don't know my shoes, my situation, right. so I'm going to ignore them. Or you might be somewhere in the middle. It's like 30% of what they said makes sense for me. But the only way we can tell is to start with the piece that's missing from best practices, which is the the us, our context. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I do, I'm doing a lot of like storytelling workshops now and and this is what people come in with this is the baggage they come in with is like well i heard that we're supposed to do this so we're gonna do this this year and i'm like well if that makes sense for you great but it, it may not let's like let's peel the the onion layers back a little <laughs> bit and see what's going on there um i have a question question about curiosity really quickly because we were talking about our kids before we started uh started the show um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we. I look at my daughter now, and I'm just like, "Oh my God, she's so smart!" And it's, but it's because she's just curious about the world. Like she, every single interaction she has with anything, she's trying to figure it out and ask these questions. Whereas we are just like, "Okay, I figured out everything I need to know. Just go on about my my day and my default mode." But like when we watch kids and we're so amazed with how quickly they pick up the iPad or whatever, it's just like, well, they're constantly asking these questions and investigating. What is this? How does it work? Where's, where does it go? What does it do? And there's so many people who evangelize creativity or talk about innovation for a living or study, you know, how things get better and better work. And, and, and there's a very common refrain, which is that this ability we have is actually trained out of us proactively by the, not just the education system, but by the way society kind of like grinds out this curiosity and yep. it slaps the hand that reaches out from a curiosity it's standpoint. Crazy. And it's it's terrible. And so, you know, like like you said, we were talking about our kids. I have a one and a half year old and my wife and I had this conversation recently of, you know, we have this impetus. It's not, Again, it's not just the school system. Um, we have this impetus as parents where we see her like struggling with something. Yeah. Like she has this little bag with puzzle pieces that when you pick up the, it's like with a drawstring on it that okay. tightens. And we know that if you pull the drawstring, <laughs> it gets tighter, yes. but she doesn't. And right. so she's trying to pick this up and access the puzzle pieces, but all she does is close it more tightly. Right. And right. our impetus is to be like, oh my gosh, she's doing the wrong thing. Let's correct her and show her the right thing. But no, let's let her figure it out. Let's put yeah. this challenge in front of our daughter. And instead of her growing up to be the kind of person that asks for the right answer, how do we help inspire her and encourage her to say eventually as an adult, hey, you know, I don't have the answer, but I know how to figure it out. Mm. You know, and I'm not saying that that one moment is going to do that, but I am trying to be conscious about how do we help our daughter become one of those people. Even though society rewards having the right answer, I think great work and creativity comes from the willingness to admit you don't and also the willingness to go figure it out anyway. And I think that's what great leaders are made of as well. And no, it's not from that one moment, but it's from a series, uh, the, the cumulative effect of a series of those moments, right? So the drawstring right. on the puzzle bag is not going to do it, but that and then, you know, everything else that she picks up as life goes on, that will I think that will train her to be that type of person. Right, right. Um, back to best practices. So... I have a question because in my world, the equivalent to, to that, that I 
am kind of you know fighting against, so to speak, is best tools. And so I want to get your thought. I'll, I'll lay down, you know, a little bit of background or, or, or foundation on on that and where I come from on it. But I want to get your thought on like how people approach tools because I think they approach them in a similar way that they do as best practices. What I try to teach people is that you have all the tools that you need to start right now. Um, so even if you just have a cell phone. If you know how to connect with people through storytelling, you can use whatever you have access to, even if you just have face-to-face interaction. Um, And often I find that people get overwhelmed because of the the multitude of options for for tools the next best tool i mean every few months there's a new app that's going to like make your videos better right um as well as platforms like all the different places to put it the different ways to to distribute it etc cetera, etc cetera. um and i find that a lot of times more maybe more times than not this leads to being too overwhelmed to where they do they do nothing um, or searching and searching and searching for the best tool to make their job easier and kind of getting analysis paralysis and still like doing nothing. So um, do you find that that same attitude that people generally have about best, best practices uh, happens with like tools or what are your thoughts on people seeking out the, the best, the newest best tool or app or whatever? Right. That's such a good question. I've never been asked that question before. I think I do put personally, I put tools in the same camp as experts. It's sort of like if you're looking to, you know, say you're, you're hack, I always position it this way. You're hacking away in the jungle and that's kind of the process of creating something, whether it's you're building your business or you're building a project. It's always this like messy, lots of little decisions all add up to the thing I'm trying to build. And you have this vision for where you're going, which is this like distant mountain peak, but you don't know exactly how to get there. Our tendency is to go look for the map with somebody's red line drawn towards that peak. We're like, how does one do this? And then we go look for instructions, and then we go down this rabbit hole of finding every little detail we need and gathering all our answers to justify acting, where clarity actually comes and success comes from acting to find your answers. Like a very simple example is, I don't know what to write about. So start writing about anything, Mm -hmm. and you'll find this little thread you can pull, and out comes a better piece. Um, so act to find your answers. So if we're now doing that instead of this analysis paralysis where tools fit is the same place experts fit, which is I have done some of the work and Mm -hmm. I keep trying to attack this one specific problem. The problem isn't starting anymore. The problem is something very, very specific and very, very narrow. And I don't know how to come at this. I've tried, I've tested, I'm stuck. Go talk to somebody, get some ideas at that point, like call in an expert a blog post, a podcast as a very specific little aid when you need it and then get back to work. Mm -hmm. I see tools as the same way. It's like I've tried to make progress as much as possible and I know with clarity that we need technology to help us solve this problem or we're trying to do a certain type of film and our tech is so lo-fi that we actually can't capture or edit the material the way we see it in our heads, right? Mm. Now it's like we're calling in this tool to specifically address this one problem. It's when we're caught up in vagaries that we get into trouble because then we're like, I need to buy podcast tech to make a podcast. I need to buy uh, video equipment to make a great show. I need to buy marketing software to build my business. And then you're like, I have all these features or all these vague ideas of what one company offers versus another. And you're, you're vetting tools against each other versus 
I have this problem, I need to solve it. I should solve it as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible, as long as it's not diluting the efficacy of solving it. Now let me go tap this product. Um, to make this concrete here, Rain, like I make podcasts for a living. Yeah. I'm using the same microphone setup and mixer that I bought in 2013. Nice. And I've, I've changed out some of the stuff that decays over time, but it's the same basic tech stack. And I've never felt the need to upgrade, even though everybody tells me I always should. Because oh, I don't they'll have any, tell you that. <laughs> right? I don't have any problems with my right. audio quality. Right. I don't have any problems. But if you listen to my shows, they're miles better in 2020 than they were in 2013 sure, because sure. I got better. Yeah. Right? So it's yeah. always about the wizard, not the wand, uh, or the witch, not the broom, right? You want to actually work on yourself first and the problem first. And if you get so unbelievably stuck that there is no other way sure, go look for some technology. But it should be the, the the last resort instead of where we tend to put it, which is the first. And that's because we don't know what we're trying to solve. We don't know what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what I try to teach people because they're, what camera do we need to use, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, if you don't know how to convey your information in a narrative and connect with people, inspire them to take action through storytelling, then it, it doesn't matter. You're, you're going to, you know, you're going to spend all this money on equipment and shoot all these videos and spend a lot of time editing them. And we still aren't really pushing the needle and getting, getting deeper with our audience. Right. And this stuff, it makes it feel more tangible. The work yeah. feels more tangible when we have technology. I get it. Yeah. Um, but we're so anchored to the container, you know, again, talking mm. about marketers as I do serving marketers who want to make a show, they are trying to make a show, not make a podcast. But a lot of people around them are like, we got to have a podcast yes. because it's a trend. Big time. Right? Big time. They're thinking about the container. But what we should think about is what the audience wants, which is the stuff inside. Mm. That's where you need to be good is not the container, the stuff inside the container. So, you know, you and I would probably say this right away, Rain, like we would rather listen to an amazing podcast host on lo-fi tech because they're charming and have something to say and they're helpful and they're storytellers. The stories are great. We'd rather listen to somebody who's a great host on bad tech than a just so crystal clear professional audio with somebody who's boring and has nothing to say, right? So start there, like start with the thing you're saying, the impact you're trying to have, the value you're trying to offer, and the rest of it, the upgrades you can make is all incremental. Amazing, I love it. There's a lot of quotables, tweetables in this this episode. I, I guess I kind of like my wife likes to joke like I do words for a living. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but then, but then she's saying this because I'm home, like drooling on myself, incapable of forming words because it's the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, and dude. we have a oh, one and a half year old, and I'm trying to communicate with my wife, and it just comes out like, "What did you just say?" So you're getting so so. I'm getting the, I'm getting the good <laughs> Yeah, you're getting all my coherent thoughts here, Rain, thanks and then to I'm, your I'm, wife. my wife's gonna yeah. make fun of me. Later. Send my thanks to your wife. <laughs> um, so I, I, we're wrapping up here shortly. I know you, you got to head on, but um, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend some time talking about storytelling. Um, and I know that that's a part of the, you know, the fabric of, of what you teach. I know you have this concept of, I think, one simple story. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just, like the I, way I try to help people access yeah, storytelling. I, rem- I remember you breaking it down pretty simply into the, like the status quo, conflict and resolution. I think it was like the three parts. Um, right. And, you know, that... When I tell people uh, at like a storytelling workshop that a story has a beginning, middle, and end, I mean, that you'd be surprised, amazed at how many people like don't even think about that and misuse the word story to when they're talking about 
I don't know, maybe messaging or something like that. Um, so just breaking down to that simplest form <laughs> is helpful to some people like, Hey, what's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? Cause I'll tell them to tell me a story. And it's like, you just talked about something. <laughs> you didn't tell me a story. Right, right. Um, so, but what place does storytelling have in what you do for the marketing community and the marketing world and your customers and clients and community? Storytelling is for me personally, everything. And that's why I get so angry that the word itself has become a bit of a buzzword because it's almost like, you know, marketer makers and marketers turning storytelling into a buzzword would be like cooks and chefs making food a buzzword. Like it should just be the job, but we misinterpret what it actually is. Yes. You know, so to your point, storytelling is not offering people knowledge. Great. If you do storytelling is not telling people about something. Storytelling is moving action towards conflict and, and raising tension and raising the stakes and then away from it. It's here is a status quo, which is then threatened by some question or some moment. Mm -hmm. And then we resolve it. Um, I, I talked to a, an amazing podcaster and food writer. His name is Richard Parks III. He hosts uh, Richard's Famous Food Podcast, which is like some psychedelic cartoon meets a food podcast. It's hilarious and very strange and hard to talk about. But he, he came on my show about podcasts um, that I host now called Three Clips. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're deconstructing his show. And he was like, you know, every story is really about get the cat up the tree, get the cat out of the tree. And like even the physical motion of up and down, that talks about the narrative arc, right, in a meta way. So it's yeah. status quo. It's a statement of fact. This is happening. But then this and that word but is so important in storytelling, yeah. especially if you don't tell an actual narrative, if you're just trying to introduce some conflict to an idea. Yeah. Uh, this happened, but then this, here's the status quo, here's the tension spiking. And into that status quo, when you raise the stakes, you can see the narrative arc goes upward, and then you resolve it, it comes down. So cat up the tree, cat down the tree. So storytelling to me is, is everything because it, it brings you in. It allows people to access ideas and emotions and find commonalities with both the storyteller and others who enjoy the story or see the world the way the story ends, right? It's a great tool, not just for brands and marketers in the world I live in, but for people to connect with one another um, instead of just doling out platitudes or what we've really devolved into in, in an unfortunate way on social media is just extreme stances. Yeah. Like story is how we come together. Story is how we relate. Story is how we access ideas and people that make us feel something. And not just the people that are like us and the, and the ideas that are already affirming what we believe, but the things totally. that challenge us and improve us. Um, so that's why story is so important to me. It's, it's everything. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I think that we've covered quite a bit of ground, my friend. Again, I appreciate the time. Uh, I'm excited to see the stuff that you have coming up. Is, uh, is there anywhere that you'd like to send people uh, I'd send them to, uh, well, I'm a Knicks fan. I wouldn't send you to a Knicks game. No, so not now. let's not go there. <laughs> no. Um, I'd send you to a restaurant or two. I like if you ever visited my hometown of Boston, what but about uh, New York, where, where'd you eat in New York in Astoria? All the good Greek food. Oh my gosh. So much good Greek food in Astoria. Yeah. If you're in New York, ditch Manhattan, go to Astoria, get some good Greek food. That's where yeah. I lived for a year, ate my way through, through, through that country by staying in my home of Queens. Uh, no, the where I'd send people. So if you're if you are interested in the the craft of making shows, marketingshowrunners.com is all of our content. And we're not talking about what microphone to use. We're not talking about you know how to distribute your show by putting a link in more places. We're talking about how to say something that matters, 
make a difference with your show Mm -hmm. and build real community around it so that not only you become a leader and a voice and love what you're saying and teaching and, and, you know, offering people, but the audience goes deeper with you and you develop a real relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in this world trending more shallow, I think that's what a podcast or a video series allows you to do, which, which I think is both beautiful from an artistic standpoint and very important for a, um, you know, community building and business building standpoint. Awesome. Um, so I have one final question. Uh, as I said, a lot of the people that I serve are kind of either in a transition or the, the beginning stage of, of, a, of, a, of their business. They're starting a new business. They're like finally writing the book they always wanted to write, but they're, they're just kind of starting out. And I help people get from either zero to one or one to two. Um, so if you have someone that's just starting out, let's say they just started a new business. Um, and they're new to all of this and they're pretty much in charge of everything, including their marketing. Where's the, what's the simple like first step to start when they don't have the money for tools and, and being on a lot of platforms? Like what's the simplest form of marketing that they can partake in? Where do they start? talk to talk to the people you aim to serve? When you talk to the people you aim to serve, not by looking at a chart somewhere, not by, you know, trying to track people go out and reach out to the people you want to serve. And if you don't know who they are, go and participate in the community. If you're a photographer and you've never actually like had a client before, go participate in the community and add value before you ask for it. I mean, that to me is the biggest shift in marketing. Marketers defined their job for years as grabbing attention. Now it's about holding attention. It's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So that is the kind of ethos you have to live out. So don't think about buying tech or ads or putting your link in more places you know, think about the job of a marketer is to add value to people's lives. And then they say, wow, Rain and his show are so incredible that I'd like to know more about six word stories. I'd like to know more about what Rain does. I, I, you know, it's very simple. Add value to people's lives and find any way to do so. But start by going and talking to those people. Because if you don't know who they are, you don't know what they care about, you don't know where they struggle in their lives or their work, nothing you buy or no place you appear is going to matter because Mm -hmm. it's about the stuff inside those containers, right? So that's where I'd start. Go talk to people and you'll find all the answers you need. And and to piggyback on on that a little bit, everything that's happened in the past couple of years for me and my business that has pushed the needle forward at all has come from a real organic, genuine connection to another human. We have all these different tools. I mean, this is going to kind of recap everything that we've talked about. We have all these different tools to reach people. And at times people thought like, oh, it's about going wide and and spraying it down and and reaching as many people as possible. But everything that I've, that I've experienced recently has come from, and often a physical connection, like in person, but at least a human to human connection. This right here, what we're doing, right? When I teach a storytelling workshop, that's then that gets me a job for uh, my video production company. And so I I have found that it, it, the part you said about just getting out there in the community and establishing those connections is, is absolutely the best, you know, seeking that depth and that longevity in what we're trying to accomplish. 100%. 
Right. I mean, and look, let's we can make it really practical. You can go and uh, go attend community meetups, go and yeah. build your own community group with starting with coffees and drinks and leading to maybe some programming over time or a website like starting small is so important. And that's, you know, I built a local community group when I had no idea who else was doing my job in Boston. I was like, I want to go meet these people Smart. and help. Let's help teach each other. We'll call it Boston content. And now it's now years and years later, it's being run by a separate crew of people and it's 2000 human beings who have opted in. But like it started with let's let's teach each other. Let's meet each other. Let's think about what are we building separately that complements each other. Let's add value to each other's lives and work. Um, You can do one to one video calls. I do this all the time with my listeners. I've learned so much. So so many things from the words they're using to the pain that they're feeling in their work, Mm. to the questions they have, to where they hang out, to other people that I should know. Like it all begins with building real community. Um, And unfortunately, I think a lot of people who sell a product or a service, we go in a hole somewhere and try to develop that product or service, the thing that will drive revenue, and then we try to announce it to the world. And we think marketing is about where you announce it and clever ways of announcing it. That is not marketing. Right. So it, it starts small. You don't need actual resources. With, with apologies to Capital One, it doesn't matter what's in your wallet. <laughs> what's in your mind matters far more, right? So yeah. much more. It's about, it's about resourcefulness, not resources. That's true creativity. Love it. Well, brother, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and all the work you're doing out there in the world. Thanks for stopping by the show. Hope you have a great day. We'll talk Thanks, to you and, soon. And thank you for doing what you do, Rand. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, brother. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow, and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 